0: but I always enjoy the creative way in which you take what I'm about to preach and put it right out there. Um, how do you think you would have felt if you had been standing there in your 8-year-old self? Can you remember back to when you were 8? Some of you are like, I don't want to remember back when I was 8. Um, how would How would your heart have responded to that? Because that's really where James is going, isn't it? And so, this morning, I would like to ask you to turn to the fourth chapter of the book that we have been spending many weeks in together, where James has been coming before us. And, and I want, you know, as we, as we look at where James is going today, I want us to go all the way back to the beginning when we first met James. And uh, one, of the things, one of the things we did together before we even looked at verse 1 in the book was we un- tried to get an understanding of of who James was because this is the man that is going to be shepherding our hearts uh, through his word that the Lord inspired for the rest of the book. And so we really wanted to take time to find out who James was because he's a name that's in our Bible. We noted that he was the Lord's half-brother. We noted that for the entire time of the Lord's earthly life, james opposed him james was not a believer james might have been a good moral man but he was not a believer in who jesus christ claimed to be he knew about his brother he could see with his eyes he obviously lived in the same home james never talks about how he felt but after he became a christian he became the pastor of the very first church in the New Testament, and he writes this letter to congregations that are filled up with people that have gone out from that church where he was the pastor, and we noted something interesting about a nickname that had been given to James by those in Jerusalem who knew him. He was called Just James, Just James. And the word there, just, doesn't mean just another James. This is just another James, or this is just another James moment. It actually has to do with his character, with what he was known for, with what, what sort of was at work in his inner life. James was a man who was righteous. So when, when you hear the nickname Just James in the early church writers, they're actually referring to a man who was known for his piety, a man who was known as a righteous man. And so my question this morning, and this is where I think James is going to take us, is what drives the heart of a person whose faith is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting? we talked about the operating system and we spent quite a bit of time looking at the operating system, wisdom from above. And then when that operating system is humming away and it's driving what comes out of our life, it's like the transmission of our life. It takes our our inner belief. It takes what we have put our faith in. It takes what we believe about God and about his word and about his world and about our place in that world and our mission. It takes our beliefs And like a transmission in a car, it transforms those beliefs into behavior. It drives those beliefs into the behaviors of our life, our words, our actions, our deeds, our thoughts. And we noted that we do what we do and we say what we say and we think what we think and we feel what we feel because we believe what we believe. And we believe what we believe... About God and about his word and all of those beliefs drive our behavior they drive what comes out of our mouth they drive what we dwell on they drive the emotions in our life those beliefs are like the transmission of our soul and James has been very very clear about that and so the question for somebody who says I've got a wholehearted single focus fully trusting faith by the way let's say that together so don't we don't miss a Sunday all right Let's say that James is looking for believers who have a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. I hope that if uh, you're, um, you know, if you're married, I hope that if at two o'clock in the morning, your wife woke you up and shook you awake and said, what does James want you to have? You would say a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. I hope it's that ingrained in you. I hope if you're uh, your teenage kids walked in your bedroom at one in the morning and shook you both away, you would say, where is your wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusty faith? Because I want it to be that ingrained into us. It's not just that we say this every week like a little mantra. I really want us to grab James, and I want James to grab us. So what is at the heart of a life that thinks this way and that believes this way and that has a wholehearted single focus, fully-trusting faith. And I think what Garrett did up here a few minutes ago cuts to the core of that. At the heart of a life like that is a set of appetites. At the heart of what goes on in the person who James is writing to, who, who has a wholehearted, single-focused, fully-trusting faith, is a set of appetites. And those appetites are going to come out in everything they do. And when you looked at James' life, when people who knew James well wanted to describe what they saw coming out of this man, what he hungered and thirsted for, they used the word just, righteous. And this is exactly what Jesus, his older half-brother said, right? Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so this morning, I want to ask you to let James sit across the table from you and really sort of peel back what's going on, not just about your beliefs and not just about your wholehearted, single focus, fully trusting faith but about the appetites of your heart. What do you hunger and thirst after? Now, in order to kind of catch up to where James is going, let's just observe three things, and then we'll get into where, where James is headed. Thing number one is that James is writing to a group of people who are making certain claims And what they are claiming is that they do have a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. Their faith is living and that they are growing and maturing and they are not double-minded because that's everything James has been talking about in chapter 1. And so there are three dangers that James is going to have to help them see. I mean, he's going to have to do an intervention I think all of us remember certain reality t v shows that were popular uh, a number of years back and and one of them where one of those shows had to do with interventions where there was a person whose life had become ensnared in some kind of life uh destructive pattern or some sort of uh, il- behavior that just brought them into bondage. It might be hoarding or it might be alcoholism or it might be substance abuse but something captured their life and by the time we are watching the show it has destroyed their life it has impacted every part of their life Uh, you know if they're hoarding you can't even get in their house if they're uh, if if they're captured in alcohol or substance abuse they, they can't have a job they've lost everything And their particular bondage doesn't just affect them. It has deeply affected the lives of other people around them. And at some point, somebody in their life, whether it's a friend or a family member who loves them or or somebody that's concerned about them, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's more than one, they decide to do an intervention. And then the whole show is about that intervention. Well, that's what James is doing here. He's coming to a group of people, and he's saying to them, it's time to do an intervention. Because you obviously think certain things about yourself, but the evidence that is coming out over here is so great that either you are in denial or you are blind. And so chapter 4 is written to people who think a certain way about themselves, but James is actually going to come and say, now we need to talk about what's really going on in your life. I know that you think you're not double-minded, <clears throat> but you are. That's the first danger that James is going to talk about. And he's going to get real. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your minds or your hearts, you double-minded. So he's looking at his readers and he's saying to them, now I, I know you've been listening to me for three chapters and we just spent a good bit of time looking at the wisdom from above and the wisdom from abo- uh, below and you are looking back at me and you are saying we're all about that wisdom from above, James. That's us. That's, I mean, we're, we're, we're with you on that. And I get the double-mindedness, and no, we're not, we, I, I am not double-minded. We are all about you. And James is looking at their life, and he is saying, we have got to talk. And here's, here's the first danger. You are, in fact, double-minded. Here's the second danger. You are self-deceived. Double-minded Christians are often, and I could almost say it this way, they are almost always self-deceived. And this is a great danger that James has warned about at least three times thus far in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. He says the same thing in chapter 1, verse 22, and then again in chapter 26. And and it's like he stops and he looks at the people that he's writing to and he is saying to them, I want to talk straight to you. You are double-minded and the reason you can't see it is because you have deceived your heart about it. And then the third danger is that all of this has led them somewhere where they don't want to be. And where it has led them is this. They have become aligned with the enemies of God. They have lined up with the army of the wrong kingdom. I mean, if you were talking about a battle between the kingdoms and you have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light... And God, using the word of truth, brought life forth in you and implanted that word in your soul and put the Holy Spirit as a mark of amazing grace into your life. And then he said to you, now, as a citizen of this great kingdom, I'm going to send you to all the little kingdoms of the world as an ambassador so that you can be salt and light. And then one day you woke up and you lined up with the enemy. You actually showed up. As a soldier in that army, something would be radically wrong. Wouldn't you agree? And that's exactly where James is going. And so they are so blind and self-deceived that, that James has to do an intervention. Which brings us to some important reminders that we need to keep in mind as we look at these ten verses together this morning. Here's a reminder, number one. James is writing to Christians James is writing to Christians. He calls them brothers. He's writing to Christians. So whatever he has to say to these brothers, the reason God preserved it in his word is because that there are other brothers, there are other Christians who are going to need this And we are some of those Christians this morning. So, number one, James is writing to Christians. Number two, he is writing to a congregation. So, this is why a lot of the language in James that might get obscured a little bit in your English Bible is actually written to a group of people. Like when he says, um, you desire you murder, you covet. He's not talking about individuals alone. He's talking about the corporate body. He's talking to the church at large. So we all need to hear this. It's not just that that there's one or two people in the congregation that are struggling with this. The entire congregation, all of us need to hear whatever James has to say in this section. And then the third thing we need to keep in mind is that What he says to the congregation is designed to impact individual believers. It's designed to impact individual believers. We can say it this way. James is not about to let somebody hide out in the crowd. He's not going to let me or he's not going to let you kind of back away and just sort of crawl into a corner and put a bunch of people around us and then kind of smile at James when he's talking and saying, well, I hear you. He's actually wanting the words that he's saying to the group to penetrate right into the heart of the individual. And so what has to happen now is that James has to help people who claim to have a wholehearted, single focus, fully-trusting faith. They claim to not be double-minded. He has to do an intervention. And and so as we look at the three sections that make up these ten verses, here are four questions that you should ask. All right? Question number one, what evidence does James use to make the case that these believers are actually operating from the wrong wisdom? Okay, it's one thing if, if James were sitting down with us and saying these things, and we just sort of bowed our heads and kind of just sighed and said, James, you are right. That is exactly what's going on. I have been operating from the wrong wisdom for a long time. What do I do? But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is this. Instead of of this response, you have people looking back at James and saying, James, that is a powerful truth. That is awesome. I'm so glad you contrasted the two wisdoms. That is amazing. And I just want you to know I really appreciate everything you've been saying about wisdom from above and everything you've been saying about wisdom from below. I don't think I've ever heard it explained that way, and I am all about that. In fact, you know, I've got my little uh, uh, papyri New Testament here. I don't know what they had in the first century. And I've written all these notes on it. You should see my notes. Man, I can't keep the quill moving fast enough. And James is looking at them and he is saying, We have got to talk. Because all that you are saying back to me that sounds so good is actually being betrayed by the evidence that is coming out of your light. So, what is the evidence that he's going to point to? That's question number one. Question number two is, once. He shows them the evidence. You remember what Garrett said when he was talking to our our kids and he held up the $5 bill at the end? He said, this $5 bill is not the problem. The problem is where? The problem is not in the $5 bill. The problem is where? It's in your heart. So there is some root cause for all of this, That James is going to expose. And then, thirdly, here's the big thing we want to ask ourselves, and that is this How does God feel about this? How does God feel about this? And what does He do about it? And then the fourth question is What response does God call for them to give? What does God want them to do about this? All right? So, James is going to unpack this intervention. Along three lines. Here's the first line. He confronts the devastating reality. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to a, a congregation, and he's, and he's wanting it to go right down into the individual life of the people who make up that congregation. And those people are convinced that they have a living faith, and that faith is growing, maturing, and that they're not double-minded. And so James says, I've got to, I've got to talk to you. I'm going to have to confront a reality that you're not thinking about. And here's a reality, and you can see it. What causes quarrels and fights among you? In other words, James says, I'm going to point to an undeniable reality. You're making these claims... You, you, you're lining up with what I'm saying about wholehearted, single focus, fully trusting faith, and, and you're acknowledging wisdom from above, but here is an undeniable reality. There are quarrels and fights among you. And what this means is that the shalom God has made has been broken by you. Go back to chapter 3, verse 18. If wisdom from above is operating in your life and in your relationships or in a congregation, here is what it produces. A harvest of righteousness is sown in shalom by those who make shalom. And so James says, I'm going to give you undeniable, irrefutable evidence that you have not been using wisdom that promotes and protects and preserves shalom You've been using the other wisdom, and the reason I can say that is because of this undeniable thing that I'm observing, and that is you are at war with each other. So this convincing question, what causes wars and what causes fights among you, the word quarrels is the word for war. It's the idea of a prolonged military war between two groups or between two nations. And the word "fights" in this is, is a word that would, would sort of carry out the idea of an individual battle inside that big war. So you guys are at war with each other, and there are battles that erupt. And the nature of the battle, based on the word James uses here, is that it is verbal. It is verbal. The idea here Uh, with the term James uses is is this, it's a heated dispute. It is a loud argument. It is personal defamation. It is disparagement. James is saying, look, there is a verbal war going on in you and among you, and what is happening is, is you are doing things with your mouth against each other that is shattering the shalom that God made. Have you ever been in a place where you walk in and it is so tense? And the verbal language that is going on between people in that circumstance, you realize, whoa, you, you ever felt this way? You walk in and you sit down and you're like, hey, how's it going? Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, you know what? I think I'm, I'll come back later. You ever do that? You ever walk in a room and people are like, ooh, I think I'll come back later. That's the idea that James is wanting you to sense there is this this battle that is going on, and James says, "Now, why why is that?" He gives a clarifying answer. Is not the reason for this that your passions are at war in you? The reason that you're at war with each other is because there is a war going on inside you, and the war that is going on inside you has to do with your passions. The word passion there is the word we get our English word hedonism from. And and it's a strong word. In fact, James uses a synonym of this word back in chapter 1 when he was trying to explain to us why temptations are so attractive to us. Temptations are so attractive to a believer because there's something inside that has an appetite, a strong yearning for that thing that is being offered by the temptation. And James says there is a desire, there is an appetite that is going on in you, and and that appetite is driving you to certain conduct. This is what James talked about uh, in chapter 1, but it's what Jesus referred to in Luke 8.14 when he said that the seed would fall on certain ground in people's lives, and then it would be choked by the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life. That word, pleasure? In Jesus' statement there is the same word that James uses here. There is something, there's an appetite in you that yearns for something pleasurable. That word can sometimes be used for good things. But in this context, what's going on around here makes real clear that James is not talking about that kind of a good desire. He's talking about an appetite for something that God has either said no to or is not given you yet. And because you want this, you're willing to engage in wicked content. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You go to war. I mean, this desire, this appetite that you want to enjoy, that God has said no to you or God hasn't given to you is so strong in you that you are willing to murder your brother over this. Kind of takes you back to Genesis chapter 4, doesn't it? We're two brothers were offering acceptable sacrifices to God, and one was accepted and the other wasn't, and it made the other so angry that he rose up and he slew his brother. So before we dismiss this as just, oh, it's not physical murder, remember back to Genesis 4. It can lead to that. But here in this text, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, James has been talking about the use of the tongue. Constantly in the book, he says, do not say... In chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3, he has a whole chapter, a whole half chapter on, on how a believer can, ha- can have the kind of operating system that would take his tongue and set it on fire from hell and use it in very destructive ways. Well, that tongue has been at work here. And James says, you want evidence that the wrong wisdom is operating? I know what you say. I know that you are all about saying you're about the right wisdom and you're all about your whole heart at single focus, fully trusting faith, but here's the evidence. Your tongue has been at work. You have been character assassinating each other. You have been wounding each other and you've been destroying each other. You have been murdering people with your mouth. And the reason that is all happening is because of an appetite that is so strong in you that you're willing to set aside what God has said. And that brings us to to the denial from God. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So here's James' point. You do not get what you want from God because you have stopped asking him. And the reason you have stopped asking him is because he has not granted you what you're asking for. And because you have asked God and he hasn't granted what you want, you've stopped asking and you've decided, I'm going to go get this another way. The way God told me to get it is to come to him and ask him for it. And, and he's not giving me what I'm asking for, and so I'm going to stop asking, and I'm going to go over here and figure out how I'm going to get what I want. This is exactly what happened in Old Testament Israel in Elijah's day. They wanted rain. They were desperate for rain, and God had said in his word how to get rain. Humble yourself. Come before me with a clean heart and pure hands, ask me for rain and I will give it. But they weren't willing to do that. They were willing to ask God, but they weren't willing to humble themselves. They weren't willing to cleanse their hands. They weren't willing to unify their hearts like Psalm 24 talks about. And because God didn't send them rain and they were dying, they said to themselves, well, there actually is a new way to get rain. Our king married a woman and she brought in a ton of prophets and a ton of priests and they actually have a new God they're introducing to us called Baal and this God is the God of rain. And so since God isn't giving us rain when we ask him for it here, maybe we should come over here and we should ask God for this God for rain. This is exactly where James is going here. When God says no to you about an appetite that you want, are you willing to take the no with joy? Or are you going to go and say, how would the world tell me how to get this? There is a way to get this because people have it all the time. That's why I want it. I see somebody else has this. I see that over there. I see a bigger house. I see a better, better car. I see a better job. I see all of these things, and I want it, and God is not giving it to me. So how do they get it? And then you go figure out how they get it. And then you decide, that's how I'm going to get it. So here's the big question for us this morning. Why doesn't God give his children what they ask for, especially when you read Matthew chapter 7 when he says, ask and it will be given to you? Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. So if I'm these people, I'm going, Well, God, you told me that if I asked, I would receive. If I knock, you would open. And and I've been asking and I've been knocking, and you haven't given. So since you aren't keeping your word to me, I'm going to go figure out how to get it. So we got to ask ourselves, given that statement in Matthew 7, what do we do when God says no? Well, let me take you to another text that I think uh, explains this to us. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, Jesus goes on to say, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So here's James' point. You have not because you've stopped asking. And the reason you've stopped asking is because God has chosen not to give you a serpent or a stone. God never gives stones or serpents to his children. So if God has said no to something you want, or if he said not now, he is doing it because he always is a good father who always gives you good things. Are you willing to embrace that? I mean, let's say that you are at home and you've just received notes a notice from your boss saying, hey, we're transferring you to another state or we're ending your job. And are you willing to say to God, God, that is a good gift for me because you have somebody or something, you have some kingdom purpose that you have for me that will exalt your name, extend your kingdom and help others do your will that you have for me to be a part of. And, and this season, it can't happen here. Maybe God closes the door, and you can't figure out why he's closed the door. It's like, God, this is a good thing. This is, this is a good thing. And that's James says, you ask amiss, right? He says, you, you ask wrongly. And, and let's be careful to know that asking amiss doesn't mean we're asking for something evil. It could just mean that the thing we're asking for is not what God Needs for us or wants for us, and it, it will that particular thing will not help us, me in particular, or whoever's asking to exalt God's name, to expand God's kingdom, or to do God's will, which is the first half of the Lord's Prayer. All right, so here's what James is saying when you come to God to ask for things if you are operating from the wisdom from above, here's what you should be asking for. God, I would like more life. I would like more health. I would like a different car. I would like a different house or whatever it is you're asking God for. But God, here's why I want it. I want it not to satisfy and spend on my own appetites. I want it because I am hungering for righteousness. I want whatever I'm asking for because I want... That thing, I think that thing will help me to exalt your name in a better way. It'll help me to expend or extend your kingdom in more effective ways. It will help me to do your will or to cause other people to do your will more effectively. So, Father, would you give me this car? Would you help me with this house? Would you, whatever it is you're asking for, because I want your righteousness. I want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And I think the thing I'm asking you for, better health or, or sparing my life from this cancer, I think that is what will help me to accomplish your will and to exalt your name and to extend your glory. Now, let me ask you a question. Does God know better than us how to do those things? Yes or no? Yes. And so if God says, all right, Sam, if that's really what you want, if you really want me to use your life to exalt my name, are you willing for me to give you a good gift that you may not like? And that's when you have to make a choice, isn't it? Because when the good gift that God hands down to us goes contrary to the real thing going on in our appetite, what do we do? Well, let me tell you what, what happened here because that's the next thing. The next thing is there was an exposure of a deadly root. There was an exposure of a deadly root. James says, all right, you have not because you asked not, and you stopped asking because God isn't giving you. And God isn't giving you what you want because he's a good father who only gives good gifts and he will never give you a stone or a serpent. And and at this time or that thing, whatever it is, that would be him giving you a stone or a serpent. It is not going to help you exalt God's name. It is not going to help you extend God's kingdom. It is not going to help you do his will. My response at that time is going to expose where my appetite is. You see? And so this is exactly what happens next. These believers that James is talking about said, all right, if, if God isn't going to give it to me, then I'm going to come over to this kingdom and I'm going to embrace this wisdom and I'm going to line up over here because these people have this all the time crying out loud, I'm not asking for a Rolls Royce. I just want a car that starts. I would just love to have four tires that are brand new once in my life. Right? And so, all of a sudden, now... My appetite over there when God said, now, look, if I give you that, it's like giving you a stone or a serpent. I never give stones or serpents to my children. I only give good gifts. And so I'm not giving you that because that isn't how I know you personally are going to be able to exalt my name, extend my kingdom, or do my will. And then I say, well, you know what then? Fine. I'm coming over here because this is what I want. And it's a good thing. Having a little extra spending money is not sinful. Doing this isn't sinful. Having a car that I don't have to jumpstart every other time isn't sinful. It's actually going to help me not say things I shouldn't say and have to confess. Right? So how do lost people get this? Well, they go do this. They go get an extra job, and they do this, and then and, and they, you know what? Fine. If, you know, if that's the way you're going to be, I'm putting all this energy over there at church, and you know what? I'm done. I'm going to just show up and, and do my... Sunny morning deal, and then I'm here because this is where I'm gonna start spending time. Because this is how I'm gonna satisfy those act, those aptitudes and those 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 ad, uh, those appetites. And James says, "Okay, let me just tell you what you did. You aligned yourself and you lined up with the world. That's what he means by being a friend of the world. You just took the loyalty." That should have been driving you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you set it aside and you came over here with all of your own righteousness. Well, look, I'm, I'm in this world and I'm still doing all the Christian things. I'm still at church. I've still got my Bible. Look, I got notes in it and all this, and you're doing all that. And God says, but you lined up on the wrong side, you joined the wrong army. You have become a friend of God. That's the shocking position that these people are in. And and, and, and the second thing you see there is there is a scriptural admonition. James says, Now look, when you line up with the wrong side, it's not just that you're somehow. You snuck over on the, you know, it's like, okay, you weren't paying attention and the game was going on or the battle was going on and you looked up and pretty soon, wait a second, I'm fighting on the wrong side. And you make a beeline over there to the right side. No, you're here. And James says, let me give you a word for that. Let me give you a word for you. Now, this is a hard word. Can you imagine hearing this word? James says, let me tell you what you've just done, adultery. You are adulteresses. He uses the feminine form here because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was considered to be in a marriage with God. In the New Testament, you and I are considered to be in a marriage with Jesus. And when we line up with the enemy of God or the enemy of Jesus, we are committing, we are betraying that love. We are committing adultery. And and so James says, "Let let me admonish you. He says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what is the spirit God caused to dwell in us, right? These are two questions that come up in the text now. What What is the spirit that God caused to dwell in us, and who is doing the yearning? You see that uh, in the text there. Look, look again very carefully at verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says? So he's going to point to the entirety of the Old Testament, and he's going to say, read your Bible and come to this conclusion. Do you think God is kidding when he talks this way, when he says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? And so there are two questions we need to ask and answer. Who is the spirit and who is the he that is yearning? All right, so I'm just going to make sure we, we, we catch this, all right? So who is the spirit that God causes to dwell in us? There are three options, all right? There are three options. Option number one, it could be the Holy Spirit. James could be saying... God caused the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, and when you do that, he, he yearns, he, he, he goes at it. He's not going to let this go. So it could be the Holy Spirit, and it could be the Holy Spirit zealously fighting against the flesh for the purity of the believer. All right, Or it could be the human spirit that God put in every man when he breathed into you the breath, the spirit of life. So it could be that God is saying, look, I put a spirit in you when I created you, and when that spirit does that, I am jealous. I am going to be zealous. I'm going to be like a jealous husband, and I'm going to go after whatever is taking your love away. So it could be The Holy Spirit that is in us, that God caused to dwell in us, that is zealously going after whatever is drawing our appetites away, or it could be God looking at the human spirit he created in us, and he's saying, I am not going to let that go. You say, which one is it? Well, if you have a New American Standard, you'll notice that the spirit has a big S, which means they think it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that God put in them is yearning. And so when you go and you commit spiritual adultery, the Spirit of God isn't going to let it go. He is going to fight for you. If you have an ESV this morning and you look at that word spirit, it has a little s. And that little s means it's the human spirit. It's God saying, I'm not going to let the human spirit I put in you go. I'm going to fight for it, all right? You say, well, Pastor Sam, which one is it? Man, I wrestle with this all week. I mean, I went like, pew, pew, pew. I was like, I woke up one morning, God, is it the big S or the little S? You know, I'm drinking coffee, big S or little S? My whole week was about big S's and little S's. I'm like, give me a sign. And I walk in the kitchen and there's a Russian alphabet sitting on the table. Thanks, that really helped. So can I give you my opinion? Here's my opinion. James has been talking about, in chapter 1, the word of truth bringing forth life into you, all right? You were already a a person that had a a spirit and a soul, but but in James chapter 1... God quickened you, he awakened you, he gave you faith, and all of a sudden, you became a new creature. I think that's what's going on here. The problem with that new creature, that new man, is that I still have what living in me? I still have the flesh, the irredeemable part that's going to be with me until I get to heaven. And here's what I think is going on. I think James is saying, that the Scripture has warned you repeatedly, and he's actually done this in chapter 1, right, when he talked about temptation. The Spirit has warned believers repeatedly that the new man is going to constantly be attracted and tempted by the flesh to do appetites that are sinful. Do you think the Scripture is kidding when it warns you about that? I think that's what is going on here. I think James is saying the scriptures are really clear. You shouldn't be surprised that that the spirit, the new man in you, is still tempted because of the flesh, and there is this yearning for appetites that aren't there. And by the way, if we're honest, we all struggle with that. But he gives more grace. So that's the next thing we've got to ask ourselves. God's gracious provision, what is the more grace? The word more there is the idea of jaw-dropping. It is, it is stupendous. It is, it is amazing. It's like, wow. It's like standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon that you've read about your whole life and seen pictures of but have no ability to think of it as much more than just this big hole. And then you stand on the south rim and you look down and you're like, wow. It's jaw-dropping. The grace that God is giving us, that James is pointing to, is jaw-dropping. And the word grace means that it's enabling. This jaw-dropping grace, whatever it is that God gives a believer, is enabling him. And the grace that God has given you is his spirit. When the word of truth brought you forth, it was implanted in your heart. James chapter 1. But God caused the third member of the Trinity to indwell you so that you could be enlightened and energized and able to do that word. And that's why Galatians 5 talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, going to war against our flesh. And when we line up under the Spirit, we will not do the desires, the appetites of the flesh. This is jaw-dropping. James is saying here, look, you are here and you want something and your appetite for it is is so strong that you're willing to disobey God to get it. Because God isn't going to give you a serpent or a stone, but you're so determined to get it that you go over here. Now, what drove you over here? What is it that is driving that desire so intensely? And the answer is your flesh. You say, but I'm a Christian. I shouldn't feel this way. But you do feel this way because your new man still has a flesh that is drawing it. And that's why James says, you cannot be deceived about this. Don't think that because you're a new person and, and you're a Christian, you aren't ever going to struggle with sin. In fact, you're going to struggle with sin probably even more than you did when you were an unbeliever. That temptation is going to be there because your flesh was never renewed. Your flesh just constantly continues in its old way and because it never gets what it wants, it argues louder. And when you are not in the Word, when, when the Word of God is not something that is washing over you, when you are just reading the Word and, and being a student of the Word but not a doer of the Word, the Holy Spirit is silenced in your life. And you have no hope as a Christian of defeating your flesh in your own power. And so God said, I've given you a jaw-dropping grace. I've given you the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the last thing, and that's this. Well, how do I access this? How do, if I'm over here, how do I get back? How do I get back? And James says in 710, 7, verses 7 through 10, submit therefore, to God. He, he says, look, here's what you got to do. He expresses it generally at first. You need to submit humbly and you need to resist boldly. You, you need to come to your senses and you need to humble yourself and bow yourself under God's word. And then you need, you, you're you lined up here. You need, you need, you're, you're, you know, you're lined up in opposition to God. You need to come back and turn this way and start opposing God. The enemy, that's the idea of resisting. Don't stand with, step back and stand against. And so that's the idea of repentance. This isn't just, oh man, I feel really bad about this. This is actually you humbling yourself and and changing sides. And then very specifically, you you, you must repent. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Repent. Now, how do I draw near to God? And the answer is, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, come to this word. Receive with meekness the implanted word. You know how I draw near to God? I don't draw near to God by going out to some mountain and saying, oh, I just want to draw near. And this is higher than down there, so I'm a little nearer. That's not how we draw near to God. We draw near to God when we come to this book that's how you draw near and then when you come to this book here's what you do you acknowledge that you have sinned and you unify your double-minded heart here's what James says look at the text again draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands whatever you have been doing over here stop doing wash your hands that's the idea purify your hands and then admit that your heart has been double-minded you have been that double-minded believer who who as a new man has started operating under the old wisdom And you've got to unify your heart. You've got to take the hard drive of your life and you've got to reformat it and you've got to take all the malware out of there and you've just got to make sure that the operating system, wisdom from above, is unadulterated, it's unmixed. It is whatever God has said to you. That's what he means by cleanse your hands and purify your heart. Now, how do you know when somebody has done this? They mourn joyfully. I mean, here they are, and the Spirit of God has done a gracious work in them, and has exposed them and has opened up their heart and has helped them to see we didn't just we didn 't just blow it, we, we betrayed God, and they run back to the site where they should have been from the, the start, and they, they come to god 's word and they humble themselves, and, and they line up where they should line up, and they cleanse their hands and they purify their hearts. And then God says they do this, they mourn over their sin. I mean, and then what Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted, as opposed to people over here who say, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. You know, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. And that's what I'm going to do. And yeah, okay, maybe I got caught lying. It's no big deal. I said, I'm sorry. I'm done with it. And, And until the next time. I feel really bad. You know, I'm embarrassed that that this happened. You know, that's not mourning. That's the kind of worldly sorrow that leads to more death. Paul said to the Corinthians, there is a godly sorrow that mourns over sin. You know, when you hurt somebody or you, you do something with your mouth that assassinates them and God exposes that, how do you feel about that? And James says, here's what should happen after you call out to God and you cleanse your hands and you purify your heart, you ought to run to that person and say, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I sinned against you. Would you forgive me? I don't want to do that again. What can I do to make it up to you? Please forgive me. There's there's mourning there. Hey, can I ask you a question? You can ask me the same question. When was the last time You genuinely repented over something. And you mourned to the point that you went to somebody and said, I am sorry for this. Man, if you can go for years without ever apologizing, you might not be, you might not be a believer. You might be a person who has the kind of faith in chapter 2 that we were warned against. You might be the kind of person that has a dead faith, that believes just like the living faith, but it, it has no life. You might have a Bible full of notes that you've taken, but there's no mourning over sin and there's no repentance when you break God's will and you hurt another person and you sin against another person and you're fine with that. So there is this joyful mourning. It's not just mourning. There's joyful mourning. Why? Well, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. And that's not Jesus coming over and putting his arm around, oh, it's going to be okay. Look, here's a napkin, and dry your little teeth. That's not the idea of comforting. The word comfort there means strengthened. You will be strengthened. James says it this way, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will what? He will exalt you. And that's the final thing. This morning is joyful because of what is coming. It, it is, you, you, God says, look, when you come like this, here's what I promise you. I will lift you up. Isaiah 62, uh, uh, 66, too, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So do you hunger? for the right things do i hunger for the right things this is hard i found out hard this week this week i've been working on this text you know and and so i went to dinner with somebody and during the course of that meal this person said you know pastor i i love you i appreciate you all the uh, very kind and gracious and then he said but there's one thing and he exposed a little area in my life And when he exposed that little area in my life, it looked a lot like the wisdom over here. So I thanked him. We continued talking, and I, I went home, and I, you know, I thought about it for a while. I thought, you know, that took a lot of courage for him to do that. Hey, by the way, when somebody comes into your life and says, hey, can I talk to you about something? You have no idea the amount of courage it takes another believer to do that kind of an intervention in you. So I thought, man, that took a lot of courage. And then I thought, okay, I need to work on this. I need to, you know, Lord, you're, he's right. I need to work on this. And so I started thinking about that. And then as I started working on James, it was like, no, wait a second. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. This is not a work on it problem. This is a, this is a, hard, this is a software problem. I mean, this isn't like you've got to go punch the right keys. Uh, you've been punching the wrong keys. There's something going on in the software that's crept in. You've got, you've got to figure out how to cleanse the software of your life, of your soul. And you know what happened? I'm like, you know what? That's just, uh, that's just not, you know. So I said, you know what? We're going to do Jonah in the fall, so I'm going to go hang out with Jonah. So uh, for a whole afternoon, I hung out with Jonah. I should have been in James, but I ran to Jonah. And I had a great time with Jonah. And next morning, I was like, okay, what can I do? And Pastor Ben, who was away on a weekend anniversary date with Amberly, had asked me to preach on Joseph in the equip hour. So said, oh, great, I'm going to hang out with Joseph. So I, hand, I hung out with Joseph an entire day, and James was still waiting. And when I couldn't put off James anymore, I came back to James, and James was right there waiting. Okay, let's talk about your software problems. And you know what? I think I may not be the only person that James goes after with this. For me, it was this area. For you, it could be something else. And it all comes back to, are we willing to let James confront us and help us? Let's bow our heads. Shall we pray together? Lord, we are humbled by the power of these 10 verses. Lord, frankly, I don't quite know how to close our time this morning other than just to acknowledge how deeply this section has impacted me. Lord, I pray that it would impact every one of us in this way. Lord, whatever it is that you have identified that is so strong in us that we are willing to walk away from you in our heart, Would you use these verses to help us to draw near to you, to repent, to cleanse our hands, unify our hearts around the wisdom from above, and to line up under the amazing gift of your spirit that fights for us against our flesh as we respond to the word that is implanted in us. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.